welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome. Today in the show, I brought back Alexander McQueen. Alexandra is a well-known financial author and co-conspirator of mine on many different projects. And she was on the podcast previously with David Field talking about their book, The Boomers Retire. But specifically, I brought her on the show to kind of zero in on a core issue of retirement for any generation. And that's specifically the challenge of longevity. And that is a little bit more unique to business owners because of the number of different options we have for how we basically build wealth. But I want to really focus in first and foremost on what is the challenge and why is this so difficult? And with that, here's my interview with Alexander. Alexander, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. So I gave you a brief introduction, but if you'd like to introduce yourself and tell people a little bit more about yourself, that'd be great. Oh, conspirator. Uh, oh, conspirator. Yeah. The last few years, I've really focused on providing content. I mean, that's this new word that people use now. I would have writing a lot about financial stuff. <laughs> there. Your intro was better. There we go. So basically, the retirement income question or making sure that you do not run out of money when you're retired. It sounds like a simple premise, but... Frankly, it has actually been called by Bill Sharp, Nobel Prize winner, Bill Sharp, that is, the dirtiest problem at all of finance. And I like to basically, when people say, well, well, why is this that big of an issue other than the anxiety it causes within me, I say, well, here's the situation. We're dealing with a problem that is nothing but variables, with, except for one constant. And that constant is that you need wealth to consume, period. But the variables are how long you're going to live, what do returns look like, what are you actually going to spend, and how does that expenditure vary and then on top of that, what is the inflation that we have to plan for if, if we can't plan for it at all? So it's just a bag full of variables and an inability or an unforgiving environment if you don't get it right. Because I always say the most tragic thing in the world to me is someone in their 90s running out of money. So that's my framing of the problem. But from your standpoint, how do you view it? Well, don't forget in that list of variables, tax, right? So where you're oh, taking absolutely. out tax. So it's, I always think about planning for retirement and specifically longevity is, is if you're planning to take a trip and you think, okay, I flip the car, but you don't know how long the trip is or how much gas do you need? And the other issue with longevity is that it is what we call multiple, I can't even get the multiplicative, which means mm -hmm. it multiplies all the other risks. So you listed a bunch of risks, you know, things like inflation, return, all of those things are multiplied, or they're made larger in the presence of longevity. So if your returns are substandard, but your life is short, then it doesn't matter. If inflation is high, but you only live a few years in retirement, inflation doesn't have the chance to eat away at your, at your retirement income or your savings. But if it's a long time, then all those other risks are made larger by the fact that you are living a long time. And it's, as you just said, it's a bag of uncertainty. Yep. So let's talk about how this problem has evolved over time, right? So, you know, we can think back to what retirement meant. And actually, let me just take a step back on this. Retirement is still a relatively new concept in Western society in that most people worked until they were decrepit and died, quite honestly, back in the day. And just to lend further proof to that, the very first state-sponsored pension in modern society was the Germans under Otto von Bismarck, who basically set a pension date of 65 and was later moved to 67, moved around around 65, 67. But back then, life expectancy expectancy was like 35 to 38. And the pension was designed to basically pay you money when you were so old that there was no possible way that you could continue to contribute to society and, and continue to earn income. So that's a fast forward to today where 
it's all about freedom at early ages and this concept of enjoying your golden years, which our industry has sold to everybody. Talk to me about how the key factors that have changed between Otto's days to now. There's so much to say. I mean, you talked about life expectancy under Von Bismarck. It was around that 35, 45 year age. So thinking that's life expectancy at birth. So when we talk about longevity, you know, what do we actually mean? So there's a billion different, not a billion, there's a several different ways to measure it. So there's life expectancy at birth. So if somebody is born in 2021, they expect it to live. Well, they haven't lived any of those years yet. So it's obviously a projection, but life expectancy increases as you age. So even under an 1880s Germany, if people live to age 45, it's not as though everybody died at 45. Some people live beyond that. And if they did, then they have living to a very advanced old age. And it was at that very advanced old age that Bismarck said they would be eligible for a pension. So one of the things that you need to understand about longevity is at what point are you measuring it? Because if I look at life expectancy at birth today, it's around that 84, 85 year mark. From But if I look at, you know what, it's lower, it's around 81. That's the whole point. If I look at life expectancy at age 65, you'll notice it's five or six years longer. But what happened? I didn't somehow, how did I grow five or six extra years? It's because the population on which that's being measured, all the people that died early are now out of the pool. And those, it's, it's, it's just like survivor bias in our mutual fund world. Exactly. It's funny because it's, I like to basically say it's kind of like life expectancy is a 50% probability, right? So odds are half the population will die before that. Odds are half will die after that, even though someone wants to bait me on this, which I thought was hilarious. But it's a measure of your current age, like what you're expecting. And I always liken it to the dog at the, um, the mechanical rabbit at the dog track in that you don't really ever catch life expectancy. Because if you manage to be like, okay, great. My life expectancy was 81 at birth. I'm at 81. It ain't like you're dropping dead there. Your life expectancy is now 87. So you're short of you being on your deathbed where you're and you're about to die, where your probability of, of life expectancy drops to literally zero or minutes. That's always a number in the distance, not in front of you. Well, here's another analogy that might resonate for some of your audience. It certainly did for me. When I so I have two kids, and of course, when you're pregnant, you have a due date. But that due date is just the same thing. It's the median expectation of how long the pregnancy will last. So there's actually a huge variability around uh, due dates for humans. And how you know that is that once upon a time, Sears, that's another whole conversation, but once upon a time, you set up a baby registry at Sears. And if you actually had the baby on the day it was due, everything on your registry was free. And why could they do that? Chance of actually having the baby on the due date was very low. Mm-hmm. That's just like, so I know that, you know, median life expectancy for me is whatever age, but the that I'm going to die at that age is low. There's a huge dispersion or a very wide dispersion around that median. So we talk about life expectancy as that 50% probability, but let's talk about how are encouraged to use life expectancy. So if you look at the, you and I are both certified financial planners. And if you look at the projection of guidelines that FP Canada publishes together with their sister organization in Quebec, uh, the Institute for the Planification de Financier Quebec. Your better chance, released, better odds of getting it than I did. So go, you go ahead. They released projection assumption guidelines that certified financial planner certificates are encouraged, directed to use. And one of those guidelines is about how long should you plan for your clients to live? So you look at that and you are encouraged to plan for not that 50th percentile because it's too risky. Mm -hmm. You're encouraged to plan for the 25th or even for a a conservative client, the 10th percentile. Say that, you know, longevity, well, average longevity might be 81. But if I start looking at the 10% probability from the age of 65, now I'm well into the ninth. So I'm planning for 10, 15, maybe more years of income. And that's a very material difference when I'm planning how much I could take out of this 
Yep. And it's, uh, I mean, I once had a client debate me on, you know, why is it I was going that far because life expectancy was X. And at the end of the day, it's, again, it's the, again, we look at the impact of the decision if we're wrong, right? So do you want to, do you want to die in your deathbed with more money in your account than you spent? Or do you want to literally be worried about it prior to, or you're running out of money prior to? And as I said before, and someone once debated me, but I thought this was hilarious. No one ever said to themselves, oh my God, I haven't spent it all. Quick, hand me my laptop so I can order a bunch of crap on Amazon, right? Like no one no one has ever done that. Like as we've said, just out of spite, I will send it, I'll spend it all, right? So let's not, when people tell me they want to bounce their last check, my, my old joke is it better be the thing that killed you because otherwise I can't possibly guarantee that. No, it's mind knowing that you're not going to run out of money. It's not about actually running out or bouncing the last check. It's being able to live out your retirement years knowing or with some level of certainty that you are not going to run out of money and you're not going to be forced to reduce your standard of living. So we treat this like a math problem, but it's really a behavioral psychological problem as much as it is anything else. And it's interesting you you mentioned that because there's a number number of issues we're going to touch upon that are behavioral and psychological that have to do with like regret aversion and any number of things that lead us to the wrong conclusions, unfortunately. So you said that you have somebody, you know, a client might say to you, why are you using 95 or why are you using number as a life expectancy figure for me? That's not what life expectancy is. So it goes back to what I said about what are you looking at when you're saying this is life expectancy? So another issue is so during the COVID pandemic, we have seen newspaper articles or media articles about how average life expectancy has decreased. So it's important. And it, I don't know that people would understand like a layperson, which I am, right? But a layperson understands. What is meant when we say average life expectancy has decreased because of COVID? That is what's called period life expectancy, which is if the conditions that prevail now in this period continue, then life expectancy will be impacted. But we are not, in fact, expecting COVID to continue killing people at the rate. That sounds so morbid, probably appropriate for this podcast. But we are expecting that that the deaths from COVID will trend down. We have a vaccine. So we are not expecting that the tremendous mortality increases because of the pandemic will continue. But I don't know that you would understand that by doing a headline or glancing at. So people come into these conversations with very different ideas and they're, you know, they're supported or not supported by all the different things they're reading. Well, that's the thing, right? So just like to say that that the the changes to mortality are going to stay or stay permanent presumes that nothing changes now. The other issue is that, so another one that people look at is the opioid crisis. Yes. It, it does life expectancy absolutely as a population but it does not increase does not affect my longevity so if i'm not an opioid user i am not actually impacted personally for my own personal life so even though life expectancy might be declining around me that's kind of an economic problem obviously a social problem but it doesn't mean that i can suddenly oh look average life expectancy decreased by 15 months because of the opioid crisis or because of covid i can knock 15 months of income off income plan. Yep. Well, I mean, consider the the gains in mortality from the decline in smoking over the last 20 years, right? If you were a non-smoker, your gains in mortality were minuscule. However, if you were a smoker, which was a large percentage of the population, then yours were yours were increased. And if you were born in that period, which made you where smoking was less socially acceptable and therefore you were likely to remain a non-smoker your entire life, those gains, you were let's say you were 50-50 odds that you were going to smoke or not. Like those gains now become static. It becomes a gain for sure.
sure. So it's, I mean, this is all, again, this is all statistics, right? So it's the old, I hate to quote uh, Twain on this one, and there's lies, damn lies, and statistics, but the reality is no one's an average, and I keep saying this all the time, no one's an average. Now, the average information is absolutely useful in informing our decisions, but we also look at the distribution and where you fall on that, um, on the spectrum of, of various factors that affect you. I mean, for example, we're not going to, you know, as planners, if we have someone who's got a family history of advanced cancer killing them all off by a certain age and this person's already had three forms of it and barely survived, I'm not going to plan for 110. Like, it's just not going to, like, the odds of that happening are pretty weak. Yeah, well, let's go back to that idea of who are we looking at when we're talking about longevity. So I mentioned those projection assumption guidelines. Those are actually for what we think of as healthy retirees. So mm-hmm. if you look at the population life tables, so those are the tables of data that are used to make the projection. If you look at the tables that are used by uh, FBK and the IQPF, it is for pensioners. So those are people who have already lived to retirement and they are presumably healthy because they're continuing to be alive. And so what that means is that the numbers in those tables are actually quite different from what we call population life tables, Mm -hmm. which is the life expectancy for the entire population, which includes people in poor health. So as a rule, people who seek out retirement planning advice are people who anticipate living long lives and who are positioned to live long lives. They have money, they have assets, they're seeking out advice. So they, the life cohort of people is actually substantially different. So you have already, I've talked about a couple of different things, the difference between period and cohort at life expectancy, the different population life expectancy and this healthy retiree group. And then just how do you, so I'm one individual and I'm looking at this data that's from Canadian school or a subset of Canadians. You know, how do I locate, we haven't even talked about the differences in gender as well. Just, yeah, well, it's the so old ph- phenomenon yeah. that women women live longer than men. However, the flip side is men are less likely to claim disability as an issue. However, I like to say that I can explain that entire phenomenon anecdotally in that men are just too stubborn to get something treated and it'll kill them. Whereas women are more likely to actually go get treated when they have a problem. <laughs> so no doctors ever refuted that assumption. So. <laughs> Anyway, okay, so we've identified the problem. We can go on to into depth about the problem, but let's talk about again how things have changed, like the, the the various ways we can protect ourselves in longevity, right? So purely planning for that and preparing for that is important, but there's various tools we have, and the first one. Now, let's also, I'm just going to go back quickly to my previous comment on all about Bismarck. The downside to all these longevity gains has been that the timeline that we keep on planning for keeps on getting longer and longer and longer and longer, which basically means that you need more and more capital to take care of it. And and actually, I'm going to take a sidetrack here. Part of the problem is the fact that we have, as a society, anchored on 65 as a retirement age. And somehow, if you go beyond that, maybe you're a failure, right? Or if you do it earlier, a success. When in actuality, 65 was picked because of decrepity back in the day. And frankly, if you had adjusted the retirement age in Germany for longevity gains, retirement age would now be 95 in Germany. So that's the level of decrepity we're talking about and ability to work. The reality is, is that, again, this new this newer concept of retirement is one that's actually costing us a lot. It's costing us a lot because if you do look at the world as 65 is when I'm done, 30 plus, potentially 30 plus years is a long time to do nothing and is a long time to have to fund your lifestyle. So let's talk about the different methodologies for how, besides we got the government pensions, which are a great cornerstone to a good retirement because that becomes the 
kind of basic level of income that's indexed to insurance, indexed to inflation, and pretty much guaranteed by whatever government you're, depending on the dependable the government is. The reality is, is that those are cornerstone. But where are you seeing a move around the world to change the retirement age from 65 to later? The U.S. has moved normal retirement age back to 67. Canada, we tried to do that with old age, old age security, but then there was an election, and then that got reversed, even though it was bad policy in my opinion. But I think, if anything, we can. I think in the future we can count on those government pensions to start to see those those numbers start to push a little bit older, which puts more of an hmm. onus on us. Well, back to what you said before, you know, 30 retirement. I mean, your working career might only be 30 years. So Correct. just as a, as a very basic math problem, how am I saving and meeting my goals during my working life? How am I saving sufficiently to fund another 30 years? I, I think it's also key that you said we're not designed to do 30 years of nothing. Is retirement nothing? Is it doing nothing? It's certainly not. Doing nothing is actually fairly cheap compared to what we expect to do. Maybe not so much well, during the, the past problem. year, but flying around, whatever it is that people are doing in retirement, life doesn't stop even though you've withdrawn from the workforce. So there's, mm-hmm. but you, you're at, your question was about how do we solve? So government pensions are guaranteed lifetime income, and we are essentially required to participate in those, whether it's CPP or if we get OAS by virtue of the fact that we've lived in Canada and contributed to the economy and to you know society. But if I want guaranteed lifetime income from any other source, I have to pay for it because guarantees are expensive. So I'm transferring the risk away from me. And it's just people in general have a challenging time understanding two things. First is, why is it so expensive? And the second thing is comparing the income from that what, what it takes to produce lifetime retirement income, like the amount of money. So with pension commutations that we've talked about, somebody says, Oh, look at that. My pension is worth a million dollars, but it only pays me 2000 bucks a month or $2,500 a month. How can that be? Because one figure looks so small compared to that lump sum value. The amount of money that it takes to generate super retirement income over an expected retirement of 30 or 35 years is a big number. You can it either fund that yourself, yep. right? Or you can share the risk with others. So there's, as you know, there's innovative products coming on the marketplace. I mean, there's the old standbys of income annuity where you're transferring the risk to the insurance company. And in exchange for your one-way lump sum, they promise to repay you for as long as you're alive. You just have to do to receive the money's breathe. So um, here we come up to what's the, known as the yeah, annuity puzzle, yeah. which is everybody loves pensions, but annuity sales are pathetic, quite honestly. There's definitely incentives around the industry not pushing them because you can manage assets at 1% or you can get 3% for one sale, right? Like there's that. But the bigger issue comes down to consumers just actually have a really hard time pulling the trigger. I mean, we're, and frankly, you know, think of that million dollar example you had with the pension. That is the biggest purchasing decision outside of a house in GTA, <laughs> making fun of properties. But for most people, like that pension decision may be the single biggest financial decision they've ever made in their lives with some of the biggest repercussions they've ever had. And the reality is, is that imagine now that's the pension saying, stay and we give you income or take this. Now flip that around. You've saved a million dollars and we can give you X amount per month. I have never encountered anything but resistance to that recommendation. So, but it's hilarious. If you ask people, would you like to, if you, if I could get you to join the teacher's pension plan, the Ontario teacher's pension plan tomorrow, would you do it? And they're like, oh God, I'd love to. And it's like, but kind of giving you that opportunity now, you just don't want to take it. But you can see the framing around versus annuities is very different. So the pension, I purchased it over a long period of time. It was contingent with my workforce participation. My employer kicked in and planned. I didn't participate at all. The employer paid it all. And then I get this benefit when I retire versus mm. I saved all by myself. Nobody helped. 
me and now I have to give it all away. So I just feel like even though structurally the income coming into my account is very similar, it's very, very different. Well, it's, so it's you, make you know, it wrong we'll call it regret aversion, right? Like in the, the day, yeah. you're changing one large purchase decision for a lifetime of tiny purchase decisions. And that is far more easy to live with than it is than it is basically on uh, you know because now the stakes are so much higher when that number is that big which is why a lot of people may make the wrong choice when it comes to pension commutations but if we just look at what is goal so if the goal is to have so if i say okay i've got my cpp i've got my oas and i'd like a little more and i'd like it to be guaranteed so that i have a certain amount and i don't have to worry about spending it so i could buy a moderate annuity somehow i don't feel like that kind of moderate choice gets a that it's kind of discussed as an all or none one yeah. and all at once decision. Because you could just like you could dollar cost average into investments, you could dollar cost average into annuities over time. Yep. Now I'm hardly the first person to say that, but it just we I the annuity versus uh, take your chances in the stock market is really always framed as an either or decision as opposed to a mix. It could be both. Oh, absolutely. It absolutely could be. And it's it again reduces that regret aversion. I mean, I think part of the big scary problem is that unless you're looking at a refund annuity, which changes the rates, so you're paying for that refund privilege, you're basically, you could have buyer's remorse there in that, oh, I just gave this up and it's irreversible. That's part of the entire issue is I think people are just really averse to, they're afraid, they're afraid of regret aversion, essentially. And actually that leads to another kind of regret aversion. We discussed this beforehand. It also leads people to make the wrong decision around their candidate pension plan uh, deferral or their, sometimes their old age security deferral. Here, care to speak to how we see people basically make the wrong choice there? Well, certainly the advice has been tipping toward defer as long as you can. But personally, I think it's important to recognize that that is generic advice suitable for a population. It may not be suitable for you. Like there's many circumstances, actually, especially for business owners, where you may want to take it early or on schedule or, you know, sometime before 70, the maximum possible deferral, because it has to do with the mix of the other sources of income. So you minimize taxable income as opposed to taking it all at 70. I guess my main comment is that the generic, I don't mean generic as any kind of anything other than it just meant to describe the whole population. The generic advice is delay because it's a cheap, guaranteed lifetime source of income. You have to buy. It's waiting for you when you turn it on. And that's yeah. amazing, good advice. It's just that it may not apply to individuals. Well, let's all go back to the entire no one's an average. You know, averages came out of, believe it or not, U.S. military studies on size. And I was just listening to a podcast where they talked about how early in World War II, the number of crashes were through the roof. And then when they did a study on how, like how many people actually fit the average cockpit size, because the average was designed for the average, no, not a single, single pilot in the military was the average. And therefore the cockpit was designed for no one. So once they designed it to redesign a cockpit to be flexible and to adapt to whoever was in the seat, suddenly the crash statistics just fell like a rock, right? And that's the same thing around the same principle around, hey, we can, on average, maybe you should think of deferring. However, that highly depends on every other factor going into your financial plan. And I, you know, I had a client the other day where the previous recommendation was to do it earlier, and then we pushed it back. It's a recommendation 10 years later and response reaction was, well, why? Well, like, well, here's a bunch of the variables that changed that resulted in a different answer. So, and I think they were, they were a little annoyed because they were looking for a universal, but it's like, there's no universal. It's it's what fit you best. But that I mean that is really with longevity. That is the crux of the issue. That we're taking a universal idea. How long do people live? And trying to take a 
from that generalization to get some sort of individual answer. You know, how long will I live? I don't know. I can, there's my genetics, my gender, my health, I don't know, my attitude, all that stuff plays into how long I individually will live. And I have to plan for myself as an individual and be guided by those universities. And it's, find I don't that, know, that point. Yeah. And I totally admit in my experience, it's always, I, I always feel like I typically find people, at least to my, unless they have family members who've lived into their nineties, no one seems to think that they're going to be the person that lives into their nineties, right? Like that's just for whatever reason, that seems to be the, uh, what I've seen in my experience. However, as they get older, they start to think it's more possible, but it's, it's funny because that leads to, like we said, regret aversion issues, like deciding when to take CPP or older security. It's like, well, okay, that's nice. But what happens if I die before 70? right? I'm going to get nothing. Yeah, I know, but you will actually be dead and you won't care. Exactly. <laughs> like this is, this is the thing is that like, oh no, I'd be really, really angry. No, you wouldn't. You on your deathbed, you would not be thinking about the fact you did not take Canada pension plan early and profit from it. Like that's not how it's going to work. Quite honestly, a lot of these pro products that have return of premiums embedded in them, they're designed to minimize your regret aversion. However, they come at a cost and largely they're irrelevant. I'll pick on critical illness ROP in most cases. It's like, oh, you didn't you didn't get critically ill and you're 80 years old and you're in your and you die. And oh no, you just paid for something that you got nothing out of. Yeah, well, if your house doesn't catch fire, <laughs> like be happy about that. It was cheaper to have insurance that well, didn't you refund know, your premium. Paradoxically, though, the annuity is actually a solution to regret aversion because what we're talking about mm -hmm. for the person on their is I should have taken CPP earlier. I would have had more to spend. So they would have had more certainty of income. That's what actually an annuity provides. You know how much you can spend. I said this on Twitter the other day, but we always decry the gig economy. Oh, it's people have this uncertainty of income. And I think, well, why do we then go and that uncertainty of income becomes acceptable in retirement? Who wants a mm -hmm. gig economy retirement? Exactly. That's unfortunate we're dealing with. Now, you mentioned earlier some innovative products that are coming on the market. And of course, uh, for anyone listening, Ken, you're probably or seen Alexander comment on social media. Uh, we're talking about the tontine. Care to explain that concept? Well, yes. Tontine, you know, it's funny because <laughs> until it started started reemerging on the financial world, people would have heard about it from like movies and old films. So the mm -hmm. tontine is just it's a or the Simpsons. Lorenzo. There was a, there was that Simpsons oh. episode where they with the, where Grandpa Simpson was in a tontine to like the last man surviving got all the Nazi stolen art. It's kind of an extreme tontine, but it is what. <laughs> but that is the essence of the tontine. It's a group. And whatever the reward, the, the money is being shared in a group, and it is shared among survivors. So as people are removed from the group through other means, depending on the taunting, then the proceeds are shared among a smaller and smaller group. So the in the modern institution, the taunting is a way to provide guaranteed lifetime income without the intermediary of an insurance company. So insurance companies provide the back, the only companies in Canada that can do the that can provide a lifetime guarantee. With the, that's the insurance component. But the Tontine is able to do that because they're not providing insurance. They're just the way that the product is structured as there are participants in the pool and they either are in the pool and surviving or out of the pool. So you don't have to give any money to them. Yeah. So, I mean, it's basically like an annuity where essentially you give money to an insurance company and they give you a guaranteed income stream for life, but they take all the risk. This is where the, this is in this, in this consideration, the people in the pool are the insurance company and there's no guarantees. They share the risk themselves. So there's no guarantees on the income. The income is going to be income divided by whatever, but by whoever's left over. But one of the things that this does and a, a term people are not familiar with is the concept of mortality credits. Can you explain that concept? Okay. So mortality credits is very simply, so put money in the pool. So we can talk about it with CPP, for example, or any kind of longevity product. 
that doesn't provide a large death upon death. So I, CBP is a classic example. I pay in during my lifetime. I die. Maybe I die even before taking a single payment. What happens with money? Well, I only get $2,500 out or my survivors do as a death benefit. And the remainder is left in the plan and it actually sponsors or supports the withdrawals by others through what is called mortality credits. Now, CPP doesn't actually formally use mortality credits. That's a kind of an insurance. But the underlying concept is contributions go in. And then if people die early, and that's the essence of, I've said essence times in this podcast so far, but that is the crux of longevity. Not everybody will make it to average longevity. So those people who do die early, their premiums or their contributions are then spread among the remain, remaining people in the pool. And that's what we call mortality credit. And this leads many to say, well, that's not fair. I'm losing my return or whatever else it is. And, and you know what? I say, again, would you like to be a member of a pension plan? Because if you'd like to be a member of a defined benefit pension plan, that's exactly how defined benefit pension plans work, right? It's the old cop show or movie where the guy's like, oh, I'm about to retire. I can't get shot because I want us to collect my pension, right? Like the reality is, yeah, unfortunately, the probability of, of a cop dying the day after he basically starts his pension is pretty slim, but it does happen. And in that case, it's the mortality credit, right, to everybody else. And at the end of the day, it's no one likes to lose that bet right? But really, you're not entering in that bet because you're so afraid of losing it. You're entering in that bet because the cost of winning that bet, if you're not in, of, of basically having the event where the bet would pay off, is so enormous that you basically, you're going to benefit from it. It's like life insurance, right? You don't want to lose the bet on life insurance. But the reality is, is that, especially from a protection standpoint with your family, if you don't have it, the repercussions for your family are could be substantial, right? So it's like anything, it's like any other form of insurance, but without, in this case, without insurance. Well, and you can tell what the benefit of mortality credits is if you simply look at what a GIC pays. So a GIC has a level of risk to an income annuity in terms of the guarantee for the income, but it pays just a tiny fraction of what yeah. an annuity purchased, particularly as you age. So payouts, of course, increase as you age. So buying an annuity at, say, age 80 will pay more than at age 70. And yeah, if I have a hundred and I want to put it, I want guaranteed income. Okay, I'm going to put it in a GIC. Have you looked at GIC rates lately? But compare well, yeah. that to an annuity, right? That might pay four or five. And why can it do that? It's because mortality credits. Well, it also, I mean, the other issue there with the GIC concept is is, people, is, is uh, several people or many people treating the principles if it's sacred. You know, they want to live off right. the income because, and what all they're really saying is that I'm trying to create a sense of security around the entire thing. When in actuality, frankly, if you really want to leave something behind, you buy, ins- you buy life insurance. It's cheaper. But the reality is, is that you're going to, especially at current rates, you're going to eat into your principal. Unless your net worth is so substantial that a 1% annual yield on your GICs is more than sufficient enough to pay all your after-tax expenses, then guess what? You're eating into your principal. No, but you've made the point. The, C- the GIC is for capitalization. If you want income, but and you want guarantees, now you have a limited selection of products to choose from, and the annuity should be in that group that you're looking at. Absolutely. I so, mean, what else is there that has a guarantee? Well, I mean, we used to have a product called the Guaranteed Minimum Withdrawal uh, Benefit uh, Fund, which I wrote, we both wrote about extensively back in the day. But those guarantees were so rich, they caused some problems for insurance companies. And to this day, I still have clients who have a bunch of those are paying out very high guarantee rates. So, mm-hmm. I mean, really what we're talking about is it's kind of a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you have just normal investing, which comes with no guarantees on how long it's going to last as you consume it. Because at the end of the day, you're going to be drawing down on it. So no guarantees, 100% market risk. 
On the other end of the spectrum, you have the annuity, which basically is a zero risk, essentially, well, potentially zero risk. We'll talk about insurer risk if you, if you need to, but we have basically, okay, I've taken, I've created certainty around, around income stream now, and someone else is taking that risk on for me. Of course, they are charging, I can get into that later, but point is there it is. And then you have this middle one now, which is the ton team, which says, hey, you can take on the risk the insurance company was taking on, but still benefit from mortality credits. And it gives you, it gives you basically a, not a guaranteed income stream, but an income stream where you do benefit from the mortality credits that an insurance company was going to give you by way of the annuity. So when you factor in the fact that insurance companies got their profit margins, that's now stripped out of it. And the other piece is, I remember, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure if you were there, it was an IFID conference. I believe it was Don Ezra who talked about a study out of the US that showed that the average expected rate of return on an annuity was about 97 cents on the dollar for the average person, right? And again, the insurance company is taking the reward for basically taking a reward, taking a price for essentially guaranteeing you and immunizing you against any running out of money. Whereas now that risk and that profitability is all back in the pool. Well, let's talk about when, when you say that the taunting is not guaranteed. I want to just dig in any bit. So when we buy an annuity, when you buy an annuity, the amount is guaranteed. So you can buy all kinds of different riders, cost of living riders, guarantees, and so on. But I buy the annuity, whatever the agreement is, that money is coming into my account every month as long as I'm alive and breathing. And then potentially as long as the survivors. With a tontine, it's not, we say that it's not guaranteed, but that doesn't mean that no income is coming out. It just means that the amount is uncertain. Correct. Because yeah, because at the end of the day, it's as always a percentage are, yeah. of the pool. Correct. So it's not as though there's nothing coming out. It's just that the amount is unknown because there is no guarantee. It doesn't operate in the same way. But every year it pays out to a smaller and smaller proportion of people because of of mortality. So you look at that and say, ah, how it works. That's different from an insurance company paying the guarantee no matter what. But it doesn't mean that there's, it's riskier, right? It's not the same as an annuity, but it doesn't mean that it, from an income point of view, it doesn't mean that it's an unsuitable product. And from the going back to the premise of the podcast, from a business owner standpoint, this is very convoluted by the fact that when we start throwing in holding companies and other structures into place, then the the tax implications of these products or the number of number of different ways we can hold these things increases substantially. So there's a lot of different options there. I mean, the reality is, and we've talked about this now too. The the taunting's so new, it's we don't have a framework for it. But ideally, someone's going to solve this with a math equation as to what is the combination of the three types of products. Mm-hmm. Given the current levels of return and the specifics of the client that guarantee that basically give us the highest probability of never running out of money. And that's going to be an interesting an efficient taunting frontier. An efficient, an efficient taunting frontier or similar to uh Quima's previous work yeah. on the uh the RSQ yeah. score. So let right. me plug into variables in a calculator or financial planning software. And I need I want the Monte Carlo score to now be 99, 95%, whatever it is. What combination of these three types of guarantee or guarantee or longevity products is going yeah. to basically result in me having that, that score? That's that's what I need to know. So it's still early. So overall, I think if I'm going to sum up the message of this is that longevity planning is problematic. There's a lot of variables. There's a ton of decisions, everything from pension start dates to the mix of products you have. Never mind, we didn't even talk, we didn't even talk about asset allocation as well. Mm-hmm. And we didn't we didn't really cover the actually before we do, let's cover this retirement risk zone. Let's talk about what that is because right. that is a very important concept. Right. Well again, in a nutshell, so think, okay, so I need to do my retirement income starting at age of 65 or 67 or whatever the date is that I've chosen. So what do you need to do before that? You may think, oh 
my investments invested how they are. If you are heavily invested in equities and we go through a 2008, then you may have a material difference in your the sustainable retirement plan over the long term because you're starting to withdraw when markets are down. So if you experience a big loss, 30%, 40%, and you start, i.e. you retire, then the sustainability of those withdrawals is diminished. Mm-hmm. So what you need to do is start think about yourself as preparing for retirement when you're in that retirement risk zone, which is probably five years before retirement starts and five years after, sorry, five years before and five years after, a 10-year yeah. window. Yeah, I've seen it a 10-year to 20-year frame done as to when this is. And the reason why those years are so much more sensitive is because, well, I mean, you're in the last five to 10 years before you actually make the decision to turn off the income tap from working. And in that first five to 10 years of retirement, that is your longest period that like that is the front end of the wedge in terms of how much time you have to do it, right? So it's the first, so 10 years down the road, 10 years in retirement, your timeline has now shrunk. Your timeline has now shrunk. So therefore the nest egg only has to provide income for a shorter period of time and therefore is not as, believe it or not, sensitive to, to, to market shocks where a big market shock early on where you're still drawing down in simple principle, you're down 30%, you need to draw 4%, 4, 5% to sustain yourself. Now you're down... 34, 35%, which takes makes the recovery even harder. So, you know, there's any number of tactics for how to deal with that. They're beyond the scope of this conversation. But the point is, is that I think the reason I bring that up is this is a topic that anyone who's in that five to 10 year zone of before they're thinking about retiring or anyone who's in that 10 years after retirement needs to be very aware of and needs to be very concerned with. And I think the never ending bull market we've had in the last 10 plus years has lulled a lot of people as to the risk of that, but it could vary. If you retired with just enough last week, there's based on where everything's, all the inflated values are around, this is is a very dangerous uh, place to be, quite honestly. Well, I think that what you said earlier is that eventually we'll have math problem. They'll have it. You can bring out your financial calculator and press a button and it'll say, okay, this is the optimal allocation between all these different products to give you the optimal retirement for your circle. So there's the math problem side of it, but then there's the psychology and behavior part of it. So even if I had the perfect math answer today, I don't know that that would solve half the problem because the other half is having people be satisfied with the number that comes out of the calculator. And that's a planning function or that's a function of financial planning, which is all about you as an individual. Absolutely. So perfect. So before we wrap up, where can people find you, Alexander? Oh, the place I hang out the most probably is Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> you and I both. Yeah. So, and it's, I've been on Twitter for a long time, I guess. I don't know. Maybe Twitter names are harder to get, but I am Money Gal on Twitter. That is the place to find me. Excellent. Alexander, thank you so much for engaging this conversation. Thank you, Jason. So that was my interview with Alexander McQueen on the concept of longevity planning. As you can hear, there's no real definitive answer around this because frankly, every situation is unique. And as I said earlier, when you're a business owner, all the different things we talked about just compound and become even more difficult because the number of possible pots to draw from and the implications of each of those increases as well. So uh, bottom line is get help. (laughs) As we've always said in this podcast is that don't take this lightly. Nothing breaks my heart more than talking to families whose seniors in their 80s and 90s are running out of money. So don't let yourself be one of those. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. 
or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you. 